was almost nine years ago that Jen and I were sent out from your midst to go begin a new work in Istanbul. Um, and over those years, we've seen the power, the kindness, the goodness of God. Uh, I, I suppose by now we've seen a couple hundred people come to faith, most of them from Muslim backgrounds. Uh, we have walked alongside many people in deep poverty and pain and trauma, folks like Celine. Uh, uh, she's now in, in Paris, uh, was able to move on from Istanbul, still, still working to get her daughter back. Uh, and so many of these things that we're able to do, we've been able to do um, because churches like Christ Church have been constant and faithful and walking with us, and we're very grateful to God for that. One of the reasons I wanted you to see this film is that it, it gives you a little bit of a taste of what it's like to walk with someone who's struggling very deeply, um, who's, who's lost in the darkness. And what happens when you walk alongside someone in situations like that is that they tend to become much more honest if you actually get in close to them. And this, this video is honest in ways most of us are not typically honest. And Psalm 39 that we're about to look at is honest in ways that most of us are not typically honest. Um, have, have you ever noticed that when Christians share about their struggles, if they share about really big ones, they, we tend to do it in the past tense. We will say, I was really struggling with this sin, but now God has set me free. Or we'll say, I was I was really angry with God after my wife died. It was, it was like I hated him. But now I see that God was walking alongside me all the time. Right? Now, of course, it is wonderful to praise God for his help and care in the past. But why is it that nobody ever seems to be struggling too badly in the present? How are you? Good. How are you? Fine. But what if you're not fine? What, what do you do when the words that want to come out of your mouth, when the emotions that are filling your heart contradict the gospel that you know is true? Even more importantly, what does God do when we're in a place like that? And that brings us to Psalm 39, because you see, David is falling apart here. He is not just fine. He is in a very dark place. And as we walk through the psalm, we're going to see four cycles. Each one begins well, and then it starts to descend into despair and error. David's trapped in a bog, and every time he tries to lift himself out, he finds that he is driven deeper down into the darkness. And as we walk through the psalm, we're going to learn about four things about a Christian who's struggling. How they should think about their emotions— their view of themselves, their view of God, and their hope. And in every area, what we learn is that no matter how great our struggles, how weak our faith, the believer is always safe in the presence of God. Even when our faith is overwhelmed, God remains faithful. Let's read together. I said, I will watch my ways and keep my tongue from sin. I will put a muzzle on my mouth as long as the wicked are in my presence. But when I was silent and still, not even saying anything good, my anguish increased. My heart grew hot within me. 
and as I meditated, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Show me, O Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting is my life. You have made my days a mere hand breath. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Each man's life is but a breath. Man is a mere phantom as he goes to and fro. He bustles about, but only in vain. He heaps up wealth, not knowing who will get it. But now, O Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. Save me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of fools. I was silent. I would not open my mouth. For you are the one who has done this. Remove your scourge from me. I am overcome by the blow of your hand. You rebuke and discipline men for their sin. You consume their wealth like a moth. Each man is but a breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Be not deaf to my weeping, for I dwell with you as an alien, a stranger as all my fathers were. Look away from me, that I may rejoice again, before I depart and am no more. These first three verses teach us about how we should deal with our emotions. See, David's aware he is not in a good mental space right now. He knows that if he starts talking in the presence of unbelievers, God is not going to be honored. So in verse 1, he says he muzzles his mouth when he's in the presence of the wicked. But what begins as a pure motive starts to get twisted. It starts to descend into something else because he's begun to bottle things up inside. He says, while I meditated, the fire burned. And you know what that's like, don't you? Perhaps you've done something wrong to someone. Perhaps someone has wronged you. And now the scene will not leave your mind. Over and over again, you think about it. What you said, what she said. What you wish you had said. What they did. And what happens when we do that? The more we think, the more we replay, whatever emotions are there, anger, fear, shame, they grow. They get hotter. David says, the fire burns. Verse 2 says literally, I was mute. Silence. I was silent even about good. That is, he was way beyond simply trying to hold his tongue in the midst of inappropriate company. What David was experiencing was so bad, so consuming, that he was lost inside himself. He couldn't speak at all. And there are, I think, two ways that people typically deal with their emotions. I've heard them referred to several different times as the conservative approach and the liberal approach. Traditional conservative types tend to think that uh, a Christian sometimes needs to suppress their emotions. A Christian, they think, should not be angry or full of doubt or full of fear. That, That would be a lack of faith. Much better to push those feelings down Pretend nothing's wrong. But in a stance like that is emotionally crippling. It's deeply debilitating. And here it is eating David alive. Well, okay, but what's the alternative? The alternative for many people today is to simply express our emotions. Get it off your chest. The, the, the mere release of emotion is seen as healthy and cathartic. It doesn't matter if you are right or reasonable or kind. Just be honest about how you really feel. 
Now, if you see someone doing that, and in the midst they are being incredibly unkind or unreasonable or irrational, and you point that out to them, what will they say to you? They'll say, but I'm just being honest. That's how I feel. Well, the Psalms consistently show us a different way. The psalmists don't bottle up their emotions, but they don't just dump them out either. What they do is they bring them into the presence of the Lord, and they process their emotions in the light of God's truth in the midst of God's presence. And that's exactly what David's going to try to do in the rest of our psalm. So be honest about your feelings. Talk them through with God in the light of his truth. Even if your feelings are coming from a lack of faith, they will not break God's faithfulness to you. It's safe to bring our every thought to him. And that brings us to the second section. Starts at verse 4. And here, as David begins to process his feelings before God, he turns to the next topic, which is himself. And here's the question. When we're struggling, how should we think about ourselves? And just as in the first three verses, David begins with a good thought. He asks God to show him how fleeting his life is. He's humble. He knows only God is lasting. He is not. But as we move through verses 5 and 6, this desire for have, to have a right understanding of his creatureliness, of his finitude, it begins to morph into something else. When he says that mankind is a mere breath, what's he saying? He's saying, we have no meaning. We have no value. We don't matter. And while the causes are very, very different, that is an incredibly modern feeling. Stephen Gold was a a famous American paleontologist. Uh, Listen to his words reflecting on the modern view of the world. He writes, We are here simply because one odd group of fish had a peculiar anatomy that just happened to be able to transform itself into legs for terrestrial creatures. We're here just because comets struck the earth and wiped out dinosaurs and gave mammals a chance. We yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. This explanation, though superficially troubling, if not terrifying, is ultimately liberating. We have to construct, therefore, any meaning ourselves. Almost everything about the modern world teaches us to think without God. And the problem for many people today, even for those of us who believe in God, is that we don't tend to find our meaning from him. We try to construct our own meaning through family or through work or through possession. We might believe that the gospel is true, but practically we tend to get our meaning from what we do. And the problem, of course, is that any source of meaning that is self-constructed must be tenuous. So when God becomes distant, life ceases to have a solid basis on which we can ground human purpose and human value. Peter Berger, he's one of my favorite sociologists, and he writes this, Modernity has accomplished many far-reaching transformations, but it has not fundamentally changed the finitude, fragility, and mortality of the human condition. What it has accomplished is to seriously weaken those definitions of reality that previously made that human condition easier to bear. You are somebody 
Because God created you to be somebody. Take that truth away and no collection of toys or experiences can stand in the face of the fundamental reality expressed in these verses. We are a vanishing mist. And though David's path is very different, in exactly the same way, he has become very self-focused in his view of the world. Instead of humbling himself that he might see God's glory, he has humbled himself and then just remained fixated on his own insignificance. Do you, do you see the lesson? David's solution, his hope, in short, his salvation, it has to come from outside of himself. When, when we are in despair, the answer is not within us. In fact, quite the opposite is true. Often when we're in despair, a big part of the reason is that we are trapped inside of ourselves. See, our faith can be overwhelmed. It is God's faithfulness to us that can never be. And that brings us to our our third cycle. And David, of course, he knows that this is true. He knows help has to come from outside of himself. So in verse 7, he turns to God. And he asks, now, O Lord, for what do I wait? What do I look for? My hope is in you. Right? David turns to God in faith. At the end of the day, before all other thoughts, God is good, and David knows it. But we see in verse 8, not everything is right in David's walk with God. David knows his sin. God has the right to punish him. Justice does not demand that God look on favor with David. God doesn't owe him anything. And so, of course, David has no grounds to complain. That's the point of verse 9, where he says, I'm mute. I do not open my mouth. He's guilty. He knows that fundamentally behind everything that he is suffering stands God himself. So he fixes his eyes on God, and he recognizes it is you who have done it. Now, up to this point in this third cycle, we're still doing okay. David's processing his situation at the feet of a sovereign God, and that's good. But again, he begins to slide downhill. Look at verse 10. He says, Remove your scourge from me. I am overcome, the NIV here says, by the blow of your hand. But the word's not the normal word for blow. The word is the word hostility, enmity. David says, I'm overcome by the hostility of your hand. Whatever it is that God's brought into David's life, why did he do it? Now, of course, the brokenness of this world means that people are going to suffer in all kinds of different ways. But when God brings pain into our life, what's his purpose in it? You could say it this way. When God brings something terrible into your life, does he do it because he is for you? or because he is against you. And how David feels here is clear. He writes, I'm overcome by the hostility of your hand, meaning that his emotions are denying the truth of Romans 8. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God. When David in verse 11 starts to speak of discipline, he's not speaking of the loving discipline of a good father. No, says David, God, when you discipline a man, you melt as a moth the things he takes pleasure in. 
Our, our lives are already as nothing, and then you take away the only things we care about. You kick a man when he's down, God. That's how he's feeling. David tries to turn to God in faith, and he ends up turning on God in accusation. Basically, David says, look, I'm just a man. My life is nothing. I'll be gone in an instant. Why do you even care? Why are you harassing me? What's the point of all your discipline, God? In the midst of his suffering, Job struggled with exactly the same feelings. If you read Job 7, you'll read this. As the cloud fades and vanishes, so he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. He returns no more to his house, nor does his place know him anymore. Leave me alone, for my days are a breath. What is man that you make so much of him, and you set your heart upon him? Visit him every morning and test him every moment. Why would God go to such great lengths to chastise us when we're so insignificant? Why? Well, precisely because we are not insignificant. David, in his despair, is no more right than modern man in his materialism and self-centeredness. God allows us to suffer precisely because we were created for eternal sonship. Because we will be co-heirs with Christ and reign with him. Which is to say, what he is doing in us is of such incredible value that it is worth the pain. You see, how you feel about something has very little to do with the thing itself and almost everything to do with how you understand it. So after the service, if I walk up to you and say, you know what, I'd like to cut off your finger. You will object rather strenuously, I would think. But what if I'm your doctor? What if I tell you in that finger there's a malignant tumor? It's about to spread to the bone, and if we don't cut it off right now, the cancer will spread and you'll die. Now, you may mourn the loss of your finger, but you will be rather grateful, anxious even, to have it removed. So, to the Apostle Paul, we know he, he suffered horrible things. Right? He writes, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, and the list in 2 Corinthians 11 keeps on going on. Now, earlier in that same letter, Paul calls all those things light and momentary afflictions. What? I mean, stop yourself there and consider that. Do not simply hear those words as Christianese. Because often Christians try to downplay hard things in their lives, right? They might be going through a terrible time, but they'll say, well, you know, it hasn't been easy, but I believe God is with me, and it'll all work out in the end. Now, you may be able to say that with a smile for a while, but if you are simply towing the party line, the realities of this world will eat you up in the end. You cannot make light of reality, or the real weight of reality will crush you. When God sends pain into your life, you can't pretend that it's roses and expect to have a vibrant life of faith. The Christian does not play make-believe. So how on earth can Paul call being stoned to the very edge of his life and having the flesh ripped off his back a light and momentary affliction? Listen, 
He is not making light of it. In the very same passage, he describes the same things by saying, death is at work in us. Death. He he couldn't take it more seriously. When our lives are hard, a Christian should call them hard. Let me read the whole verse, 2 Corinthians 4.17. This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Did you hear it? He doesn't minimize what he's suffering. He simply compares it to something else. He simply looks at what's on the other side of the scale. Granted, in and of itself, he is suffering the curse of fallen humanity and death, and he calls it that. It's horrible. But he is going through it on the path to eternal glory. And he can see that in comparison, it's light. Now, the only way that you will ever truly see this is if you know that God is your loving Father. And you know that your little life on this earth is just the beginning. If, if you are suffering... Your suffering is not a sign that you're unimportant. It is a sign that you are of greater value to God than you can imagine. It is, it is a sign that what awaits you is more glorious than you have the mind to comprehend. Now, David, he knows these things are true. Read Psalm 103. None of this is news to him. But on this day, these truths are far away for him. What he sees is not the loving discipline of a good father upon a son made for eternity. What he sees is the cruel rebuke and punishment of an angry God on a sinful worm. He tries to turn to God in faith, but he ends up turning on God in accusation. And that brings us to our last cycle. And I think it's probably the most important cycle in the psalm, in large part because here David descends the deepest. At the beginning of Psalm 73, you read, My feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. Here, there is no almost. There is no nearly. David falls. Look with me. Uh, Again, he tries to pull himself up. He calls out to God for mercy. It's kind of like at the end of John 6. Jesus has been saying people need to drink his blood and eat his flesh. And, I mean, before you've taken communion and seen the death and resurrection, that sounds crazy. Right? And so Jesus asks his disciples. He sees almost everybody leaves him. They say, this is just too hard. And so he asks his disciples, do you guys want to leave too? And Simon Peter answers him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. They may not like what Jesus is saying and doing. They may not understand it, but they know there is nowhere else to go. Either you will hold on to God until you break through into glory, or you will despair alone in the dark. And so even as David rages against God, he continues to reach out for him because he does believe. So again, he tries to hold on to the truth. And again, he will be unable. Take a moment to read verse 13 with me again. 
Look away from me, that I may rejoice again, before I depart and am no more. Like a, like a boxer that's been getting badly beaten, David had been pulling himself up off the canvas and pulling himself up, and now he finds he can't. He can't stand again. His pain and confusion on this day are too great. In effect, David ends the psalm by saying, God, just leave me alone that I may enjoy a few vain pleasures before my miserable life is over. David ends his prayer in complete theological air. This is the exact opposite of how we find blessing. This is a denial of the priestly prayer that was given to Aaron. Every night when we put our boys down for bed, it is the last thing that my wife and I say to them. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Look away from me that I may rejoice again before I depart and am no more. Why is this verse in the Bible? Derek Kidner explains it very well. He writes, The prayer of verse 13 makes no more sense than Peter's depart from me. The very presence of such prayers in Scripture is a witness to God's understanding. He knows how men speak when they're desperate. Is David going to be okay? Is he going to get through this? Well, yes, we know that he does. Okay, but why? How? Don't you see, this psalm teaches us that David cannot pull himself out of this pit. His pain, his confusion are too great. But they are not too great for God. God not only received this prayer from David's mouth, he put it into the scriptures. No amount of feeling condemned can change the fact that he is forgiven. No amount of feeling abandoned can change the fact that God is with him. No amount of despairing of the truth can change the truth. How, how do you know that your faith won't give out, that you'll make it? Because you can't fail? Of course you can. But we have a God who will never let his children go. The very presence of such prayers in Scripture is a witness to his understanding. He knows how men pray when they're desperate. Now, don't misunderstand me. We must wrestle. David fights to believe what he knows is true. But do not put your trust in your faith. At the end of the day, you are safe, not because you have a strong grip, not because you're holy, not because you know and understand the truth so well. You are safe because no one who waits on God will ever be put to shame. The ultimate solution to your suffering or your fear or your doubt is not your ability to hold on to God. It is God's commitment 
to hold on to you. If God has laid his hand upon you, no power in the world can take you away from him. Your sins can't drive God away. They are paid for. There is no darkness we can descend into that God cannot handle. Your pain, your doubts, they are not too big for him. And so you don't need to manufacture nice-sounding prayers. You can bring your emotions in what Tim Keller calls all of their pre-reflective rawness. Bring them before God and then work them through in his presence. They are not too sinful for his grace. So keep going to him. Even when you find you can't go to him in the way that you know you should. If you are a Christian, you are safe with him. God knows how we think and feel when we're beyond ourselves. He can handle it. The believer is always safe in the presence of God. Even when our faith is overwhelmed, God remains faithful. Let's, let's pray together. Father, we praise your name because you are a God of goodness and patience and kindness and power beyond what we know or understand. Father, we are very grateful for your grace. Lord, we proclaim that your grace is enough for us. Father, would you teach us to rest in it, to seek after you, Lord, to learn to do it better, but to keep seeking after you even when we do it poorly. Father, we praise you for Christ that he has covered all of our sins, that he has raised, Father, and that none who trust in you will be put to shame. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.